What a wonderful story we're going to be looking at today. The story of a young girl named Hadassah who literally went from rags to riches to the palace. What a Cinderella story. Or was it really? Was there something special about a young girl, an orphan girl, a girl who was an immigrant in a foreign country that wasn't her own with foreign cultures and foreign religions, yet God raised her up for a special moment in time? Did she have the grit it would take to step up to what God had called her for? As a matter of fact, this culture was so foreign and so strange to her that she couldn't even use her own name. She had to go by the name of Esther. And we know her story in the Bible from the book of Esther. So let's look at this young girl named Hadassah who had been adopted by her cousin when her parents passed away, brought into a foreign culture, raised in a very different situation than she was used to, who had a very, very unique experience in life. What little girl doesn't want to be a princess? I mean, didn't Chloe look like a princess this morning? The little, I got her to do the twirl in the office, you know. The dress has got a twirl or it's not a princess dress. What little girl doesn't dream of being a princess, whether it's the adventurous Pocahontas or the dazzling Cinderella? We want to have that moment that we just feel beautiful and lovely. And, and Hadassah, when the message went out that the king was looking for a bride, she was chosen to go. Now, queens in King Xerxes' kingdom had not had the best track record. And girls, sometime in sisterhood, we're going to do the story of Vashti because that was a woman with some grit. She knew what it meant. She stood up to the most powerful man in the, in the country, to the most, one of the most powerful men in the world. His kingdom stretched from the edge of Greece all the way through India, and she stood up and told him no. That's a woman with some grit. But this little, young girl called to the palace, brought in for all the beauty treatments and everything that would take place. Did she have that kind of grit? The book of Esther, we're going to skip Vashti in chapter 1 and hold it for another day. But Esther chapter 2 says that when Esther finally was brought to the court, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, 6 months with oils of myrrh, followed by 6 months with special perfumes and ointments. And it was, it was time for her to go to the king's palace. She was given her choice of whatever the clothing, jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. What a dream! This is the perception of a princess. I mean, a full year of essential oils, a full year of makeup specialists, fashion designers, and go into the crown jewels and take your pick. I could have a party. What would that be like but except the life of a princess? But that perception is very idealistic. Haggai, who was in charge of the king's harem, was very impressed with Hester. And he treated her kindly and was quick to order her keto diet and her monthly 
bring on the beauty packages through the mail and go on Amazon and keep them coming. And he assigned her seven maids. What woman wouldn't like to have seven maids? I mean, I'd be happy with one. Seven would be heaven. Especially chosen from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. But you see, this young girl did not build her life on perception. Because perception is fluid. Perception can change. Perception changes in three situations. Perception changes with life experience. Hadassah had had enough of life experience at her young age to realize that, you know what? What I see in the moment and what I perceive this to be is not always exactly as it is. She had had to walk away from two families. One, because of death. And the second, when she walked into the king's court... She would never walk back into her family home again. She would stay in the king's court for the rest of her life. Any dreams of a loving husband and a family that would have been brought up in her culture and her way of life and that she could teach the things to her children that Mordecai had taught her, all of that changed. Life experience changed her perception. Life experience changes when knowledge increases. When I was in the first grade, I'd started kindergarten, but we moved in the middle of the year, so I never went back to kindergarten, so I guess I'm a kindergarten dropout. But when I went to first grade, you know, first graders know it all. You know that, right? Every first grade teacher said amen. First graders just know it all. So my first grade teacher was talking about thunder and lightning. And she said, who knows what causes thunder? And I was like, oh, 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 I know, I know, I know. And I raised my hand and she said, what causes thunder? And I said, it's clouds bumping together. And she went, ah, no. And I was like, what do you mean no? You know, my mommy said, you know. Thunder is clouds bumping together. Well, she went off into this, you know, it's the atmosphere and the electrical charge and the lightning and the atoms and the electrons and neutrons and whatever kind of trons are out there. And I'm sitting there thinking, I've never heard that before in my life. Increased knowledge changed my perspective of what thunder was. So when my kids were growing up, and I'm a homeschooling mom, and every moment for a homeschooling mom is a teaching moment. So when the thunderstorm pops up, and the kids are like, ah, thunder, and I'm like, okay, okay, so now there are particles in the atmosphere, and there is electricity, and I look at their faces, and, they're like, and I'm like, oh, it's just the clouds bumping together, it'll be okay. Knowledge changes our perspective. It gives us more information that we can process with. It gives us a clearer picture of what's really going on. And the third thing that changes our perception is circumstances shift. Queen Elizabeth II was a young woman. Two children, still young in her marriage, enjoying being the princess. Because her father, King Edward, was still pretty young. And it would be a long time before she had to deal with the responsibilities of being queen. But you see, they had kept King Edward's illness 
as much of a secret as they possibly could. He had even had a surgery inside the palace itself because they didn't want to take him to the hospital and risk the news getting out that he was a very sick man. Elizabeth was in South Africa with her husband and her children. Had she known the depth of her father's illness, she would have been by his side. And the message came that the king was dead, long live the queen. What a circumstance to change your life. She's been quoted as saying, one cannot fully comprehend the responsibility of a monarch until one feels the weight of the crown on their head. What a responsibility. No more decades to prepare. It's now. The circumstances shifted and her perception of what her life was going to be like immediately changed. If perception is fluid, then reality is substance. Reality is that thing that it's right there in front of us. You can't deny it. It's there. This is the reality. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says this about reality. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things that we come, cannot see. Faith is equated to reality and substance. Things we can't see. Things we can't fully comprehend in the moment. But our knowledge of God and our understanding of who He is is not some mystical thing, but it is a substance. It's something that I can stand on and rely on when my perception takes a shift. You see, reality cannot be ignored. Esther was a Jew. She was Hebrew in a foreign country. And chapter 2 tells us that Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and her family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Was Mordecai wanting her to be deceptive? Was he wanting her to lie? Was he wanting her to hide herself? No, Mordecai understood something. There's a time to be silent, and there's a time to speak. And he was telling her, Esther, now is the time to be silent. Have you ever had those words that just jumped out of your mouth, and you wished you could just grab them and stuff them back in because it was not the time to speak? It was the time to be silent? And have you ever had those moments where you really wanted to be silent, but the words just came out of nowhere? You see, the scripture says, when it's time, and when it's time to speak, the Holy Spirit will give us the words that we're to say. I was recently in Walmart over the summer, and I have this little Celtic cross I wear. It's one of my favorites. And I'm standing in the deli line with my little number, waiting patiently, as the lady in front of me goes, let me have a taste of that. Can, okay, well, what is this? And I'm waiting. And this lady standing beside me stepped up, and she said, I don't see how you can wear that. Well, I was in Walmart, so I looked down to be sure I didn't still have on my pajama pants. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what is she talking about? And I said, excuse me? And she said, that cross around your neck, how can you wear that? I don't know where the words came from. It wasn't in my head. I pulled my cross out, and I said, you know what? You're right. This is hard to wear. 
Because every time I look at it, I see pain and suffering and injustice. And it reminds me that it was my sin that put a pure and a holy son of God on the cross. And she went, that was not what I meant. (laughs) Sometimes I wear that cross with this necklace and people ask me, why do you wear a heart and a cross? And I said, that's because I can say Jesus loves you. So when it's time to step up and speak, the Holy Spirit, God's gift, that comforter, that intercessor, will give us the words that we're to say if we're depending on him on a daily basis. Reality cannot be ignored. Esther Esther knew that her nationality and her background would have an influence on who she was and the privileges that she had. But you see, reality also requires knowledge and wisdom. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai the eunuch in charge of the harem and asked for nothing except what he suggested. And she was admired by everyone who saw her. You see, I see in this picture of Esther and these two men that were speaking into her life of Mordecai and Haggai, Mordecai was the wisdom. Mordecai knew God. Mordecai knew God's promises for his people. And Mordecai knew that God was faithful to fulfill his promises. And Haggai? He knew King Xerxes. He knew what he liked. He knew what he liked in his coffee. He knew what he liked on his cereal. He knew the fragrances he liked. He knew everything that Esther needed to know before she went into the king. So if Mordecai was the wisdom, Haggai was the knowledge. Mordecai knew God. Haggai knew the king. But then there enters into the story after Esther has been crowned queen and she's had all the fanfare of the royal wedding and everything is going wonderful, the villain steps into the picture. How many of you have seen the Aladdin, the animated Aladdin movie? Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen the new one yet. I can't wait. It's on my list. I love the, I love the older one, you know, with Robin Williams being the genie. You know, he kind of gets unbottled every once in a while, and he's just the genie. But you know who's the bad guy in that movie? Jafar. Now, Haman, this man in the king's court who had the king's ear, Haman reminds me of Jafar. Because when Jafar is with the king in the movie, he's like, Oh, king, you're wonderful. You are so great. There is no one like you. You make the best decisions, oh, king. And I know you're going to want to do this and this and this. And the king is like, You're right. I am pretty good. I could do this for my people. Jafar, why don't you go take care of that? And Jafar walks out of the king's present and he talks to his little parrot and his little monkey or whatever it is. And he says, you know what? We're going to do this. We're going to take the king's words and we're going to twist them and we're going to make this happen because he was manipulative. Haman was that kind of person. He was arrogant, self-centered, shrewd, cunning, and filled with hate. And there was one person 
that he hated more than any. Because this person got under his skin because what he stood for, what he represented, and his trust in God. Haman had the king's ear. Haman could speak to the king. Haman could suggest things to the king. Haman could help guide the king in decisions. And Haman took that privilege, that honor, and used it to manipulate and twist for his own self-purposes. Godly people will enrich your life. Self-serving people will manipulate your life. One night, the king couldn't sleep. He didn't have an ambient, so he had to call for somebody to read to him. And so they took out the king's logs, because surely this was boring enough to put him to sleep. And the reader turned to a part and started to read about a man that sat at the city gates. And this man had discovered an assassination plot against the king and had brought it to the attention of the courts, and the, and the king's life was spared. And the king said to his bedtime story reader, what do we do for that guy? What, how did we ever honor him? And he flipped through the pages and says, oh, king, I don't see where we ever did anything for him. And he says, well, tomorrow we're going to take care of that. So the next day, the king calls Haman into his courts, and he says, Haman, what would the king do for the man he wished to honor? What would the king do for the man he wished to show everyone in the kingdom what an honor this man is to the king? And Haman automatically thought, he's talking about me. And evidently, Haman had already thought this through because he already had this scenario figured out in his head. And he said, well, most wonderful king, uh, why don't you take your horse, one that you've ridden, and, you know, put your royal saddle and all of your beautiful stuff on the horse and uh, give this man a robe, one that you've won, worn, and one that everybody will recognize that, hey, that's the king's robe, and then maybe you should have someone of importance uh, walking the horse through the city streets and making a proclamation that says, uh, this is what the king does to the man he chooses to honor. This is a man who the king chooses to uplift. This is one the king use, chooses to honor and walk him through the whole city. And the king said, I like that idea. I want you to go to the city gates and get Mordecai, and bring him, and get my horse, and my robe, and my saddle, and you know what, Haman, you're a really important guy. I want you to be the guy leading the horse, saying, this is what the king does to the man he chooses to honor. Can you imagine how Jafar, I mean, how uh, Haman felt when he walked through the city street, with the man he hated the most and the people he was the most prejudiced against. And he had to walk through that city and say, 
This is what the king does to the man he chooses daughter. Uh, this is what the king does for the one he wishes to bestow honor on all day long. At the end of the day, Mordecai, a man who trusted God, left the horse, left the robe. He went back to the city gate and continued to do his job. Haman went home to his wife. He got on Facebook and called all of his friends. You are not going to believe what happened to me today. You are not going to believe what the king made me do. And you're not going to believe who he made me take through the whole city. Mordecai, the Jew that sits in the gate. And all of his friends were like, oh, Haman, you poor thing. You, oh, you are just have to be humiliated. Do you know you can always find somebody to agree with you in your self-centeredness? There are always people that, oh, I'm so sorry you have been humiliated. Oh, you've just been wronged. You know what? You need to get rid of this guy. And Haman's right. Well, you know what? I don't only want to get rid of this guy. I want to get rid of all of them. And so he began to plot for what would have been known as the first Holocaust, to destroy every Jew in the kingdom out of his evil heart. But you see, reality also initiates action. And when Mordecai heard what Haman was planning, it was time to step up and take action. Chapter 4 of Esther 14 says, When Mordecai went to Esther. He could have gone at any time, but he didn't. He would go into the courtyards of the palace and ask how Esther was doing, and someone would report to him, oh, she's fine, you know, she's having a banquet with a king tonight. But today, Mordecai goes straight to Esther, and he tells her what Haman is planning for her people. And where the time had been to be silent, Mordecai says, now it's time to speak. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. In other words, you're in the place to deal with this. You're in the place God has put you. But you know what? If you don't step up, if you don't have the grit and the courage that it takes to do this, God will raise up somebody to do it. But who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Clarity brings resolve. What's the difference in perception, reality, and clarity? Perception says, this is what I think it's like. This is what I see that, you know, idealistically in a perfect world, this is what it would be like. Reality is the moment that you go, yeah, my reality and my perception are not the same thing. But clarity says, I know the perceptions, I know the reality, and now I have the resolve, the grit that it takes to step up and take action. So Mordecai went away. And he did everything that Esther had told him to do, had ordered him, the scripture says. Wait a minute, that's a switch. 
Mordecai's been the mentor. He's been telling Esther what to do. But now Esther has that resolve that it's my time to step up. And she's giving Mordecai orders. Clarity will come. But clarity comes through prayer and fasting. Esther said to Mordecai, Go and gather together people of all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or three nights. My maids and I will do the same. Esther replied, This is my request and the deepest wish. I'm sorry, I jumped down. And then it is against the law, but if you will pray and you will intercede for me, I will go into the sea the king. If I must die, I must die. Now, if you've read the first part of Esther, one queen has already messed up by showing up or not showing up when the king called her. The king hasn't called Esther, and she's going to show up. This could be it for her. The Bible tells us, and Jesus instructs his disciples, that sometimes there are some things that just can't be dealt with except for prayer and fasting. Esther instructed Mordecai to pray with her, but he also, she also instructed him to call a specific group of people and have them come together because she knew they knew how to fast and she knew they knew how to pray. When we need clarity in our lives, there are times we need to surround ourselves with people who know how to fast and they know how to pray and they know how to get in their prayer closet and stay there until there is clarity in the situation. Prayer and fasting changes things. Prayer and fasting gives us the courage to step up. Prayer and fasting gives us the resolve to see this through no matter what. Prayer and fasting gives us the mind of God so that we walk in His steps and not our own steps. Several months back, it's been almost a year-long process now, but our son's in the military and he's been training for this, this particular job and the orders finally came through and they have put him through, sent him back to college, put him through specific training and they're like, okay, we want you now. And they sent in the orders. The orders were all approved. He was getting ready to make a move and the organization that takes care of, of children with special needs for the military read the orders, and they said, no, they're not military. They're not in charge of transfers, but they're in charge of the, the health and welfare of special needs children, and we have a special needs grandchild. And they said, no, we send all of our special needs children to this particular place, and that's where you're going to go. Well, all of his training, all of his... Um, special instructions and training he's been doing was not preparing him for that job. They needed him somewhere else. So if you don't know my son, Andrew, he has a little bit of his father in him. So he looked at the military and he looked at this national organization and he said, no, we're going to North Carolina. 
And they said, no. It even got so intense at one point that they told the clerk, do not talk to him anymore about not going to North Carolina. We know where we're going to send him for the welfare of the child. So we kept looking at it. Dana's online. She's reading up in the hospitals. The closest doctor that he needs is almost 100 miles away. There's only one hematologist, blood doctor, that's even at the hospital that they're going to send them to at this base. And we're, we're looking at this and going, this can't be good for Josiah. He needs to be in North Carolina. So we did what Esther instructed Mordecai to do. We got with people that we knew how to pray. We started fasting and praying ourselves. We family members started praying, God, and my prayer was like this, God, I don't know what's the right thing for Josiah. I can't see down the road. There may be something at this other base that I can't see at the moment. My perspective may be clouded. Would you do what is right for Josiah and put them exactly where they need to be and put Andrew in a place where he can see his dreams and his training, you know, come to pass? So we prayed. So Andrew submitted it the second time. The second time they came back and said, we told you no. They even told him when he went back the third time, do not come back here and give us any more paperwork. This has been decided. This organization never changes their mind. Don't you love it when they tell you that? That is when it's like, okay, God, it's your turn. Andrew told his dad, he said, Dad, my, right now my reality is at ground level. I'm the one having to go into all of these meetings and paperwork and all these and all these people telling me, no, you've got a higher perspective than I do at this moment. Do you know sometimes we are so caught in the moment of our crisis or the moment of our need for prayer that our perspective is at ground level? And we need some of those that can get up above that and see down and say, God, your perception, God, your reality, and your clarity, and nothing else. We just got orders. Guess what? They changed their mind. Andrew and Dana and the kids will be moving in just a few weeks to North Carolina. And you know what we found out in the process of all this? One of the top ten doctors that specializes in Josiah's disability is located 40 miles from their new house. Tell me God doesn't have a plan. If we are persistent in our pursuit of God, and if we are patient enough for God to give us clarity in the situation, then God will respond. Esther knew she needed God's clarity. She was going to do something that could cost her her life. It was going to take all the courage she could bring. It was going to take more than her courage. It was going to take the strength of God to walk her through this moment. So she prayed she had those around her fast and pray. And then she went to the king and stood 
just outside of his chambers. Now one of two things was going to happen. He could look at her and look away. And she would be taken out and exiled like Vashti, or she could be killed. Or he would extend his scepter to her and welcome her into his court. And she stopped and she stood and she waited. Can you imagine what that moment must have felt like? None of us have ever had to face that kind of challenge in our life. Am I going to live? Am I going to die? Am I going to be welcomed in or cast out? What a moment. And when the king responded to Esther, now ladies, I'm just saying, I bet she looked good because you wouldn't go into the king to whom you hadn't been invited in your Walmart pajama pants. <laughs> I bet she had prepped for that moment. And then you stand there and you say, God, I've done everything I can do. Now it's up to you. And the king extended her scepter. Now she could have come right in and said, King, you see that man Haman right there? He is a jerk. He is manipulating you. He has put out a decree and signed your name to it that's going to kill thousands of people. You need to take care of it. That is not what she did. She walked in and she said, If it pleases the king, would you and Haman come to dinner with me? And the king is like, time and place. We'll be there. At dinner, she didn't say a word. At the end of the dinner, the king said, Esther, what do you want? Tell me what you want, even up to half of my kingdom. And she says, why don't you come back and have dinner with me again tomorrow night? And the king's like, sure. And bring Haman with you. And that is exactly what happened. But then during the course of the evening, the king says to her again, Esther, what do you want? Even up to half of my kingdom. This is a powerful man. Do you want power? Do you want prestige? Do you want riches? And Esther, very graciously, begins to tell the king the story of Haman. The king gets so angry, he has to storm out of the room, and he leaves Haman in the room with Esther. And Haman is like, I am done. And he is so scared that he falls across Esther as she's reclined at the table, and the king walks back in. And he's like, what? It's not enough that you've manipulated me and that you're trying to kill my wife's people. You're going to attack my wife right here in front of me? This man knew he was done for. The next day, Haman was dead. The patience of waiting on God, having clarity of the situation, gave Esther the courage and the strength she needed to take her stand. Clarity sustains us in uncertainty. When you have clarity from God, He gives you the courage. 
He gives you the grit. Esther was able to say, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, then I ask that the lives of my people, not his people, my people, will be spared. And the king granted her request. What is your Esther moment? I mean, very unlikely that one of us is going to be called to save a whole nation of people. It could happen. But our Esther moments can come in different forms. It could be avoiding a conflict that we know needs to be resolved. It could be taking a stand in a troubling situation. It could be that we need the clarity in a crisis. It could be that we need to change the response in our life from responding to perception and even responding to reality and begin to respond out of the clarity that God gives. Perception, reality, those things are real. They impact our lives. But clarity can only come from seeking God. God says, do you need wisdom? Ask me. I'll give it to you. I'll give it generously. I was talking with my mother-in-law this week and I was telling her some things I learned from her. And I said, you know, you and my grandmother taught me that generosity is a gift. There is always room for more at the Sunday table. She said, yeah, you just put some more water in the soup and, you know, spread the mashed potatoes a little thinner. And, and anybody who comes home is always welcome. We always had the preacher at our house because your daddy was always inviting somebody to dinner. There was generosity at that table. And if you turned down seconds, you insulted the cook. And if you didn't ask for seconds, you insulted the cook. I learned to eat slow because if your plate gets empty at a southern table, somebody's going to fill it back up. And then you're going to have to eat it all over again. God is that kind of generous God that he says, this is my table. You want anything on it? Just ask me. I will. Do you need wisdom? Don't falter trying to struggle through perceptions and reality. Ask me for my wisdom. I'll give it to you generously. Seek God, not others. You see, in her true moment of crisis, Esther didn't turn to Mordecai, who knew God and had mentored her in the faith. She didn't turn to Haggai, who knew the king. She said, now's the moment I turn to God and I seek Him. His wisdom, His strength, His clarity, His guidance. And then I wait patiently for his timing. Maybe you've built your life on perceptions. Maybe you've built your life on, you know, oh, all of this is happening around me. This must be right or this must be wrong because it's what's happening. Or maybe my perceptions have been dashed 
and I'm hurt and I don't want to go there again. Maybe you've built your life on some realities. Well, this is just the way it is. God says to you today, through His Word, don't build your life on a perception. Don't even build it on what you see as reality, but build it on the clarity of God's Word and God's presence in our life. You may not even be a follower of Christ. You may have a perception of God and a perception of, re of religion based on things that you've seen in the world and you've thought, if that's God and if that's religion, I don't want any part of it. Or maybe you've had a reality that said, you know what, I trusted this person and I thought that was God and it wasn't, so I wanted no more part of it. God is saying to you today, my table is generous. Come back and taste of my wisdom and my reality. And clarity of who God is and how God works in our life, that's discipleship. He's asking you today, will you take that step of reality and accept Him as God of this universe and His Son as the Savior of the world? If you are a follower of Christ, will you put your perceptions and your realities aside? Maybe there's a child that you need to step into their lives and be a Mordecai. Maybe there's a person of power and prestige and influence that God will give you their ear and you'll be able to speak godly counsel into their lives. Or maybe it's just a situation that you need God's clarity. God's table is generous. He will give us the courage. He will give us the grit. He will give us the patience to follow after His footsteps. Let's pray. If you're not a follower of Christ today, I'm going to pray a little simple prayer. And you can pray it in your own way. And I promise you God will hear your heart. Dear Father, today I commit my life to You. As simply as I know how. Lord, I lay aside my perceptions of who I think you are. And Lord, I step into the reality that you are God. And that Christ Jesus is your son. And that my sins put him on a cross. Not to hang around my neck, but to pay for the consequences of my moral failures. Father... I give you myself now in the best way I know how. In Jesus' name. And Father, for those of us who have followed you for a long time, Lord, would you give us the grit and the courage to step up to the moment you've called us to? God, would you give us within ourselves not our own power, not our own perception, not our own reality, God, would you give us your clarity to face the conflict when it comes? God, would you give us your clarity, your wisdom, your understanding, Lord, your discipleship in our lives so that we will know when to step, when to speak, when to be silent, and when to step up regardless of the situation and let you do wonders. Father, above all else, above my perspective, 
above my reality, even above the clarity of knowing what I should do in the moment. God, I trust you completely that your plans are perfect and whole. And your plans for me are good. In Jesus' name, amen.